Well, hello, dealmakers. Welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I uh, had a great time at Dealmaker Live. If you missed it, you can still get the recording at dealmakerliveevent.com. Fantastic value from unbelievable experts, people who've done their first deal, big syndicators, small syndicators, people who have quit their jobs. So check it out, dealmakerliveevent.com. Also, we unveiled during Dealmaker Live our Platform Builders program, which is uh, live right now. It's only live two or three times a year. If you are an experienced syndicator and you want to scale your capital raising by going online and building an online thought leadership platform, this program is for you. Uh, check it out. There's a training that we record for you. It's at platformbuilders.com. Check out that that recording. Uh, that should add a lot of value and uh, guide you in the right direction as well. I do want to shout out to an iTunes review from Super Long Challenges on uh, on iTunes. Uh, he or she said, great podcast only. This podcast is great. You get to hear other people's stories and how or why they started. It makes you realize that you're able to do this as long as you put the time in and hard work in. Thank you for that. Um, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you as well. And uh, before we get to our guest today, which is Ashley Wilson, a very exciting topic that we're going to talk about today around how to scale uh, asset management and all those things. Before we get into that with, with Ashley, uh, let's bring on our co-host, Gary. Eric Lynch, what's going on? What's going on, Michael? Hey, one of the things I want to talk to you about is uh, I think one of the true effects of COVID is the effect it's having on construction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So construction right now, everybody's seeing shortage of labor and shortage of materials. It's just what's happening in the market right now. And so it's the reality and everybody's overcoming it in their own way. Yeah, exactly, and and it's uh, uh, let's talk about how we how we do that because I think we underestimated the importance of construction management, especially when you first get started. You kind of rely on your property manager to get stuff done, including turning units and construction things of that nature, and that may work in smaller projects. But when they get a little bigger, you know, upwards of 10, 20 units, so not that big, our experience has been that proper managers' capabilities are limited. So what would happen is that we would do these larger projects where we have to turn three, four units, whatever, a month. That's a lot for a property manager to manage. And one thing, if I would do it over again, I think you would agree with that, is instead of only relying on property management companies, the GPs may have to hire their own GC. And that GC may be different for the exterior and the interior. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So I think what's happening now is you think about you know, you have different layers between your project getting done and who you're hiring, right? And so if you hire your property management company as the layer to get everything done, there's multiple layers beneath it. They may have a GC that they go to, who has a sub that they go to, who has a supplier that they go to. So all those layers are potential bottlenecks. And when you have issues in the supply chain, you have issues with labor, you want to be as close to the source as possible, because that way you can help solve problems and you'll understand exactly what's going on. Otherwise, what it does is if you start to rely on, let's say, just your property management company to get stuff done, and there's all those layers beneath, what's going to happen is you're going to get mad at your property manager and it's going to cause friction between you guys when the reality is that the issue lies much further beneath. And so the closer you can get to where that issue lies, the quicker you can make pivots and the stronger your relationship will stay with your property manager. So how close to the source do you have to go? So we're saying property manager might be too high, get right to the general contractor. Do you advise that one should get even lower, like in the subs? Yeah. Or how low? 
we're going all the way to the subs and our on our end. So, you know, we have general contractors that we work with, then they have subs or whatever, but we you have to kind of understand exactly what's going on at every layer so that you understand their challenges. So that you you guys you can push on something as much as you want. But at the end of the day, the work has to get done. That's the only truth. Or the supplies have to get there. Don't you feel like the general contractor is not, they're not going to share with you who their subs are? And, and, and even if so, don't you think they would think you're micromanaging them? Like, why would they want to play ball in that way? No, I didn't say you have to go talk to the subs. I say you have to know who they are. And you have to, know, you have to watch what they're doing. So, yes, you don't need to necessarily go in there and get, you know, whoever the, the guy, their subs number and start talking to them on the side or anything like that. But you need to, you need to watch and understand, see what they're doing. Are they showing up? Do Are they spread too thin? Do they have a few people working on a unit that requires, you know, eight people working on it? You need to pay attention to these things on a day-to-day basis or have someone that you trust, that you understand where the bottlenecks exist, so that you can go and solve them. And if you can't solve them, you find a replacement on that level. You go to your GC and say, hey, listen, this is what I noticed. You, you know, There's not enough supervision over here. These people are not showing up. We need to find new subs or else I need to find a new you. Right. But so, but now you're holding them accountable to a very detailed level, right? Because you're getting into their stuff at this point, right? Because typically the general contractor should be watching their subs. But yes. we're finding that that's not happening. It's not happening because of just the natural forces of COVID. So... It's a lot of it is figuring out who's to blame where quite a bit of the time. It's like, oh, there's a material backup. Well, that could actually be true or it could be an excuse. And sometimes that that is really gray. And so that's why being super hands-on at every level is important so that you seek out the truth and you know exactly where things are, are falling. I have GCs that have been great that we've worked with this whole time that we're doing fantastic. And all of a sudden the wheels started to fall at the bus. Now they were transparent with us as to what was going on. So I didn't have to go too deep into it, but sometimes you don't always get that. They want to please you. They want to provide. So having that extra, those extra eyes on the project, see what's going on, make more visits to the site and, and get more involved in like exactly what's happening, where, what suppliers are, are falling short. So you as the operators, the owner have a greater ability than most to solve problems. That's what you are paid to do is to solve problems. And this exists in any department, including construction. So that's how I look at it. I don't know. I'm not a plumber. I don't know a ton about plumbing, right? But I was underneath the building crawling, trying to figure out what the issue was because I knew I could help that plumber solve the problem. They They may not have been able to see with money or with something else. There are other layers to this. So that's the way I look at it. I think there's two words that you mentioned in there that really, I think, are a key to how you interact with contractors and your property managers, and that's accountability and transparency. I think you mentioned both of those. Accountability is a little bit more straightforward. Hey, you're going to do what you say you're going to do by the time you're going to say in, in the way that you said you would do. That's accountability. The other one, though, is transparency. Therefore, knowing exactly what's happening under the hood, not just a black box, but what is going on. Therefore, you can easily jump in. Anyone can jump in any point in time if someone were to leave 
leave or get fired or removed. They know exactly what they were working on before. And I think I think that's super key. And we're shining a light on things that are really, really important that are not nearly as exciting, which kind of brings me to our guest today, which is Ashley Wilson, because she is a big proponent on focus on operations, management, and construction. She's a, she's also a best-selling author of a book called The Only Woman in the Room. She's a Bigger Pocket series host. She has over 10 years of real estate experience. She's been involved in over $60 million in transactions, both with single family and multifamily real estate. She's got really two big businesses, a house flipping business and a multifamily real estate business as well. She leads asset and construction management on her investment. So let's for that, let's get right into the show with Ashley Wilson. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just getting started or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. Ashley, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. You had a great presentation at DealMaker Live a little a few weeks ago. Really enjoyed it. We talked about asset management and operations and some of the things that you know we don't really love to talk about because it's not as sexy as finding deals and, and raising money. Uh, but it was a, it's a super important topic. I'm sure we'll get back to it later on. But I wanted to kind of get you on the show here and learn a little bit more more about you. Give us a little background on your on yourself. Absolutely. So I've been investing in real estate for a little over 12 years now, and kind of done a bit of everything. So I started with house hacking, short term rentals, long term rentals with residential. Then I started a multi million dollar flipping business with my dad, where we focused on high-end flips in the suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, which is a very exclusive area called the main line of Pennsylvania. And a few years back, I then transitioned into commercial real estate and started buying large apartment buildings. And as you just alluded to, managing asset and construction management. My goodness, that's quite busy there. Are you typically partnered up with people when you do this? I heard your, your dad, you're doing something, your dad... How do you get into this business? How do you start them up? So I grew up with a strong influence of construction as my dad owned his own general contracting business. He's owned that business for over 45 years. So I have seen everything from residential to commercial construction and had that vantage point from a different perspective than an investor. And then coupled with that, my mother managed an entire small business. So she was the manager for the entire company. So it's not surprising that I married the two and then kind of fell into that. With respect to how I've started the businesses, I always find that it's easier to work in teams. You can go further faster with teams. So I still have the flipping business today with my father, but I also to lead our apartment business. So I'm the principal of Bar Down Investments. I started in commercial like most people do when you're doing large commercial, which is by partnering with other people. And then since then I've transitioned to building out my own company. And Jay Scott is a partner of mine with Bar Down. He came on about two years ago now as a partner. Uh, so I just find that you find good people and good things happen. So I'm a, I'm a huge team player. I was a division one athlete and played on a team sport. So I am a huge proponent for teams. 
what, what, what sport was it, Ashley? I played field hockey in college, but I also am a national equestrian. I won the nation in 2013 and I still compete very uh, heavily still. So I had a horse show last weekend and I'm going up to New York this weekend. So I've traveled all over the country, even with riding as well. That's awesome. Uh, what what do you enjoy doing? Like if you're doing all these all these businesses, and within those businesses, everybody kind of finds their niche a little bit. Like, what is it that lights you up? The thing that lights me up about real estate is the actual real estate. I know a lot of people enjoy raising capital because they enjoy socializing and you know going out on the golf course or going out to dinner and drinks. But for me, the real estate really excites me. I get really excited about not only finding specific assets, but trying to figure out the best way in which to maximize the value of them. So to me, it's almost like a puzzle and there's so many different components to that puzzle and you can never stop learning because there are things to take into consideration like business operations all the way to psychology and how tenants think and what makes them lease one apartment versus another and market shifts. I'm just very intrigued by learning. I've always been a fan of learning and love lover of learning, I guess, so to speak. And apartments is the only asset class that I've found that continues to challenge me. Ashley, so this is fantastic. I really relate to this as well because I, I look at myself as kind of a business strategist. As you know, you have so many variables. You have your debt, you have the market, you have the tenant base, new construction, all this stuff. I love it. So I'm curious, how did your strategy before shift into where it is now over time? And and what what does that look like? I think everyone's journey is different. I often get asked the question whether or not you should stay small or transition to large apartments. And I think everyone's personal situation dictates a different answer. So with respect to my journey at different points in my life, I needed real estate to supplement my life in different capacities. So when I first got into real estate, I worked in clinical research and development. I was the director of global vaccine development. And that parlayed into a very heavy work time commitment for me. So I didn't have the time nor the bandwidth to take on something like commercial real estate. For me, house hacking played very well. It offset my expenses. And then we also did short-term rentals, which is something that I could automate. It was very easy to manage for me. And it was pretty much a hands-off investment strategy. So that played very well into what I needed at that time. Then I retired from pharmaceuticals and I had a lot of time on my hands, which increased my bandwidth and playing into my skill set and someone who was close to me, my father. It was a natural partnership to go into something that required more hands on involvement. It had more risk, more reward, but with that comes higher taxes when you follow the flipping strategy. So ultimately, what I looked at was how do I work smarter, not harder? which positioned me well for commercial real estate. What's ironic is that all of these different asset classes have transferable knowledge. And I think a lot of people don't think that they do, even outside of real estate. My pharmaceutical tenure also parlayed very well into all the different real estate asset classes I have been privy to execute on. But ultimately, commercial to me is the holy grail for my needs because it not only provides 
obvious tax advantages. It's a hedge against inflation if you're following anything to do with the market right now and over the past year and a half. And I mean, it's a no-brainer. We are going to have inflation. It's just a matter of how much inflation. But there are a lot of different components that make multifamily very advantageous for us personally. And then also to based off of the market demands, where I think personally that there is going to be a huge need because of the shortage of housing in the market. And there's no question about one of the things that you focus in on is literally the operations of it. And we talk a lot about the deal finding and the capital raising because that's it's just much more exciting. Why do you think that uh, syndicators have to really focus on the operations? I think historically in multifamily, what I've witnessed is that there has been so much appreciation with the apartment industry that ownership groups have been able to succeed without focusing on operations because of the huge demands that has entered the marketplace. And that has compressed cap rates and pushed pricing to the highest of highs that we're seeing nationwide right now. Ultimately, when you take into consideration changing markets, stress on markets, different market cycles, even unknowns like, for example, COVID, eviction moratoriums, I think what is going to differentiate people is going to be whether or not people have been operating this whole time versus playing the appreciation game without fully operating and understanding how to run apartments. Because ultimately, you will find yourself, if you're in this for the long run, you will find yourself into some extremely challenging situations. And I have been fortunate, and I think a lot of people look at this the opposite way, but I've been fortunate to have extremely, extremely difficult properties. I mean, in my first year alone, I went through a entire building burning on fire, a gas leak, multiple evictions, lease up. I mean, just poor underwriting. I mean, just everything that you can possibly imagine needing to overcome as an operator. And that has positioned me well to learn. And that learning that I've done has been able to not only help other properties, but during COVID, a lot of people were talking about the different collections based off of whether or not a property was located in a primary versus secondary market. And what's crazy is I didn't see that difference across my properties. And I think the commonality between our properties is we operate our properties a specific way. So the markets didn't have a huge impact on our properties because we've been operating so tightly, even pre-COVID, it positioned us well for collections, which we were over 100% collections on all of my properties throughout the entire COVID period. Ashley, so that's this is like such a great point. Again, I resonate with you. I started out in the trenches with D-class stuff. So section eight, transitioning into large apartment complexes with where you have over 50 apartments with bed bugs in it, so many that you don't even know how to pay the bill to, to fix the bed bug issue. And I think that's really kind of, you know, made me into the operator that, that I am today. So what were some of the major takeaways was like was there any like big moments that you're like man I'm I'm so glad I learned that that's coming into play now uh, as an operator every single thing I have learned has helped me along the way um, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is the marriage between asset and construction management. I think that those two roles need to be if it's not the same position they definitely need to be 
very close-knit type folks who are managing those two components together. The reason why I say that is because it is super advantageous to know at any given time what the market demands are so you can play and exploit whatever market demands there are week by week. And we literally look at our market and do market surveys every single week, which is some people would say is an overkill. And it definitely is more of a micromanagement style. But at that rate of looking at things so closely, we minimize our loss to lease because we are then renting at close to possible at market rent. And we are also pushing premiums on the highest demanded unit type versus sticking in a concession or a rate then sticks around for a month, two months, three months. And then a few months later, you know, if someone were to only look at financials on a quarterly basis, wonder why there's such a gap in market rent versus what the actual rent that you're charging. And, you know, with respect to lost to lease specifically, you can also plug and play a lot of different programs, credit building programs, uh, programs that offset deposits. So it's spreads the deposit over and basically the entire tenure that someone's at the property. Um, And that puts in a lot of different safeguards in place into your property, not compromising on your leasing criteria because it's harder to build up the right type of tenants, but it's easier to operate in the long-term. So those lessons apply across all properties. It's not specific to your point, a D-class or an A-class property. Those fundamentals work across all properties. Yeah. I think it's really important, and, and we didn't realize this quite as much in the, in the beginning, the focus on operations. Just philosophically, from a partnership perspective, it's not just about finding deals and raising money. Someone's got to operate it. And then really having someone on the team who's, who's good at it, who loves to do that. But again, this comes from the partnership as well. We, we, we realized, you know, from the house flipping days, they say you make your money when you buy the house. That's not the case with an apartment, right? If you don't execute on, on, the, on the business plan, no one's making money. So you have to, of course, buy right, but really, you, you know, they make the money and the returns on the asset management and the construction as well. I want to shift a little bit here to your book. You put out a, a book recently. It's called The Only Woman in the Room. What inspired this book, Ashley? So it's funny because when I grew up, I didn't have a lot of women around me. I was riding at the time when I was younger, which is a single sport. I got into field hockey much later. My brother played a team sport. So it was always boys around. And, you know, my dad was in construction. Once again, always boys. I never saw women in construction. And then I went in high school. I went to an all boys school that went co-ed, you know, my sophomore year when I went there, but the ratio was three to one. So I was constantly surrounded by boys in college. Again, I lived with all boys in a house, 14 other boys and myself. So I never really was bothered, nor did it, I was phased by the fact that I was constantly around a lot of men, but it dawned on me when I attended Dave Van Horn's Mid-Atlantic Summit three years ago, when Liz Faircloth and Andressa Gadelli, the co-founders of the Real Estate Invest Her community, asked all the women in attendance to have lunch together. And out of 450 attendees, there were only 14 of us sitting at a table. And I was just dumbfounded. I never realized that there was such a huge gap in women in real estate period. And then let alone in commercial. And then I don't know any other woman in commercial construction. So I always put it out on every podcast. If you're in commercial construction, please reach out to me because I just would love to you know, network with you. And I think the... 
that realization then, well, I know that realization then dawned on me. And on the way home, I said to my husband, I'm going to write a book called the only woman in the room and highlight all of these different stories in real estate, because I think there's, um, a couple underlying factors as to why women are not telling their stories. One is they're less likely to push themselves forward and self-promote. And two is I feel that there is a situation of not being asked as much as well because they aren't promoting themselves as much. So I think it's kind of a seesaw effect. And what I was hoping to achieve, and I think I did achieve was highlighting these women's stories because they're phenomenal. And there's an incredible wealth of knowledge amongst all these women in this book that have a lot of value that people can um, learn from. So, and one last point is I selfishly have two daughters and I want them to have role models that they can look up to because I know when they become a teenager, they're going to look at mom and be like, you're not cool. Like get away from me. And this way they have other women that they can look up to and say, okay, those women are also you know, doing real estate. So maybe mom's onto something. Yeah. So, I mean, the observation is there's very few women in commercial real estate and maybe a few more in real estate in, in general. Now, I think you said, okay, one of the reasons that women tend to not to promote themselves as much, which is maybe why we don't hear about them as much. But what, what do you think are some other reasons why there's less women in, in this business? I have a theory. And my theory is that if you look at historically women's position in society, it has been of being a caregiver and therefore they were less likely to be pushed forward to work. And then if you look a little bit further in history, you see women pushed to work, but pushed only to work in administrative type positions. And then if you look a little bit further, women were pushed to work in other positions, but not so much in math and science STEM type of fields. And now today we're seeing a huge push in women in STEM fields. When you're in real estate and pun is intended here, the foundation of real estate is mathematics. So if you're not pushed at a very early age to go into mathematics. And I was, and I'm very good at math. So I then had no foundation on which to build the walls and walls are finance. So if you don't have a strong mathematical background, you're not going to gravitate towards finance or accounting. I did. I took finance and accounting. And then the roof of the structure is investing. So if you aren't comfortable with mathematics, finance, accounting, you're less likely, in my opinion, to invest. So just like building a house, how can you invest without solid walls and a solid foundation? And I think in the future, not only are we going to see women more comfortable with investing, I actually predict within the next five years that more women will be in real estate investing than men. And we'll look back and we won't even be able to fathom the fact that men dominated real estate for so long, because I think women will overtake it. And in part, because study after study shows that women outperform men in investing once they do invest. It's just getting women to invest in the first place. Ashley, what skill do you think is the most important? If you had to to pick one that somebody is listening to this right now and they're, and they're like, you know what, I'm really interested in real estate. I want to get into this. What should they focus on now from your perspective to get into this game and, and take the uh, the quickest route in? 
I think being determined is the number one thing that anyone can do to get into real estate. That determination has to override your fear when you're afraid to ask questions, when you're afraid to take risks. I think knowledge is power. So if you're determined to seek out knowledge and learn, people then become more comfortable with their decisions because they can then uh, quantify the risk associated with the next step that they're taking. So ultimately determination, I think is the differential between people who end up being successful because let's face it. I think all of us can agree right now. We have faced a lot of hardships. We have faced a lot of struggles. You cannot be in real estate as long as all of us have without having to overcome challenges, even on a daily basis at times, but that determination overrides all of the self-doubt that you could possibly have and pushes us through to the next level. And that's ultimately what defines one's success. And that's not just limited to real estate. I think that's across the board. So my theory is that there's not a, not as many women in the business because there's very few role models, right? I mean, you said it. You said it yourself. You're never really surrounded by role models. You didn't even think it was one. Is is it was a thing? I mean, when I grew up, I was never surrounded by a single entrepreneur. So being an entrepreneur, I didn't even know existed. Everybody around me had jobs, right? So I think it's the same thing with real estate. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't have more minorities or more young people is because there's a lack of role models out there. Now you said something very interesting. You said, "Hey, I think in five years it'll 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 flip. It'll be more women in there. That's cool. I I think that would be awesome." But what do you think would need to happen for that to be that way? I think we're all responsible for raising people up and putting them on platforms. I want to thank you, obviously, for I was just at your conference a couple of weekends ago and you know, was a speaker on the main stage and not a panel. I can't tell you how many times that women are asked to speak at these conferences and only in the capacity of a panel or a side room headline speaker on a side room, but not on the main stage. I think we're all responsible, whether it's women or men to provide opportunities to speak based off of merit, not gender. I'm not trying to push one gender above another gender. I'm just trying to highlight everyone's experience and that's not limited to race either. So I think if we share, you know, in conversation, Hey, Michael, I have a, a great, you know, contact that I think would be a good keynote speaker for your conference next year. I think it's my responsibility to share that with you so we can all help position more minorities to your point, different genders, what, whatever the case may be to have more role models. I think diversity with problem solving, and this is going back to my psych undergrad, builds better solutions. It takes longer to arrive at those solutions, but ultimately better solutions are created out of diverse people. So I think it's because we all look at situations differently. We all come from different backgrounds and those backgrounds factor into our decision-making process. So things, for example, like the housing shortage crisis right now, the cost of construction, if we get the right people in the room, I know that these problems are not too big for us all to be able to solve. It's just bringing together the right people and having the opportunity for those people to come and have those discussions. I think you mentioned a word called platform, right? Because I know, I know many women who are successful syndicators, but they're not influencers. It's, it's kind of like they're you know, and I've, I've had conversations with many of them. I said, it's great. You're successful. But how are you using that success? How are you influencing others? And, and it could be back to, you know, women tend to be less self-promotional. 
as a, just a personality type. And men are like, look at me, look at me, right? So the men are going to be more visible. Therefore, there's going to be more, appears more role models. And I think that's, I think that's a challenge is to how do we help women become influencers in their own right? So you writing this book, for example, Liz Faircloth having, having this podcast, how can we encourage women not just to step up as investors, but become influencers in their own right? I think women do have to take part of that responsibility on themselves. But I also too think another opportunity and Steve Sims says this best is the best way to be introduced is to have someone introduce you. And I think if someone knows that they are more comfortable in a self-promotional capacity, let's take, for example, like a Steve Lloyd, like Steve Lloyd is very outgoing. He is very comfortable um, speaking. He's a great speaker. You know, that's an opportunity for him to then, you know, maybe parlay his comfort with speaking to bringing someone else on board and maybe on a panel, if they're not so comfortable having the stage all to themselves, but they have tremendous value and wisdom to add that maybe it's more of an interview style and that person then feels more comfortable. There's uh, investor girl, Brit, who's probably the most followed woman real estate investor. I know at least in North America, she actually is very self-conscious in speaking on stage. And she talks about it all the time that she's more comfortable on Instagram because she's not in front of a large audience, but she really enjoys the interview style. So you'll see a lot of times when she's speaking, it's more in an interview format than her taking on the main stage. Now, could she carry a main stage? Absolutely. But I think we all have different comfort levels. And I think, you know, once again, it's not gender related nor race related. So what's your advice to women right now listening, watching this right now? If you are in a situation where you have any interest in what we are talking about or any other show that um, you're listening to, reach out to the people who are speaking as they're typically very easily able to uh, connect with through Instagram or email or, you know, any other contact and start building relationships. There's a reason why your net worth is your network. And it's ultimately because of the opportunity and access it provides to different situations and opportunity and learnings that you can gain from someone. So I would definitely take that step. And then also too, there are a lot of different groups that are throughout the entire country, even with COVID going on, you can access them virtually. So there are so many free platforms that are available to learn and get comfortable, excuse me, with real estate that I didn't have that opportunity 12 years ago. This is a more recent phenomenon through YouTube, Clubhouse, Instagram, TikTok, all these different social media type platforms, Meetup, so exploit that because you have the opportunity to go further faster than I ever did. Ashley, where can people find out more about you and connect with you? You can find out more on bardowninvestments.com and then on Instagram at badashinvestor. All right. Awesome. And the book also is on Amazon. It's called The Only Woman in a Room. Highly recommend that, uh, that you guys check that out. I think you'll find it very encouraging. Ashley, thanks so much, uh, obviously, for speaking Dealmaker Live and being here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Gary, it's one of those things that we don't really talk about a lot, about the operations and construction management. And so this this show really shines a light on the importance of this. Yeah, I think, you know, Ashley brought up a really fantastic point that the operations and construction go hand in hand, especially during, you know, these times. 
you really have to understand, have your finger on the pulse on both simultaneously so that you can make the right pivots in the necessary time to be able to keep your operation moving forward and stay on target for your investors. Yeah, absolutely. And as we talked about in the intro, you know, while we always talk about, hey, rely on your proper manager, it can't be a hands off thing. Oh, you do this, you send me a report once a month and all is good. No, you'd be much more involved in that. Hold them accountable to specific KPIs, deliverables, timelines, and and make them be transparent with you. In many, in many ways, a lot of these have self-service portals where you can log in any time, but don't rely on them. Trust but verify, I think is probably the 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 key here with both property managers and anything related to construction. Yeah, exactly. So I think what Ashley said was was really true that she, you know she's had all these experiences over time and it's built her up into where to the, the level that she is. And so you're going to make mistakes along the way. It's just kind of the nature of the business. It's just not making those crucial, very large mistakes that are going to stink your investment. And so doing things in in the right way, creating that accountability, creating that transparency is is very important in your operation in general. And, and she's definitely highlighted that. So I, I loved her take on on how she's kind of evolved into you know where she is now in real estate. I thought that was really interesting to me how I asked her the question about, hey, listen, where, you know, what how did your strategy change uh, from before and until now? And what she said was well, it's changed based on my lifestyle and based on you know essentially where I'm at in my life, which I think is super unique and it's really true for anyone. Well, there's different parts of a syndicator's journey, and while you may not have specific problems right now, you always want to be six to twelve months out. So, listening to someone like Ashley and us talking about construction management and operations is super important, but maybe not right now. If you, of course, haven't done a deal, but maybe you've done a deal right? And it's a smaller deal. It doesn't require the complexities in the systems. But once you've done two or three deals, you know, let's say this time next year, what do you need to do? What kind of systems do you have in place? Now, right now with Nighthawk, we're about 2000 units right now. And we're really becoming maniacal around uh, systems, uh, repeatable systems to get consistent results. What, what we want is we want to be able to buy a deal and put it through the process, okay? The Nighthawk process that produces predictable, consistent results. That's kind of what we're looking for right now. So these things around operations and construction management, having the right people in place, documenting those processes and making those repeatable are super important. So what I'm, what I'm saying is always look six to 18 months in and in, in out because things happen very quickly in this business. As you know, you can do two or three deals a year. You're adding millions and millions of dollars real estate. What are you doing now to prepare for that? So that's kind of the message here is pay attention to operations and stay just ahead of the curve here. And I did mention Nighthawk, which is our investment company. Would love to have you talk to us about a future deal that we have. Go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button. You can fill out a short form and talk to us about some upcoming deals. So we'd love to have a conversation with you. That's it for this episode. Catch you guys next time.